You are listening to Dearest Benjamin, a fictional podcast series by Verna A. Ringlander. We will begin right after this. Sunday morning, and I'm waking up. Can't even focus on a coffee cup. Don't even know whose bed I'm in. Where do I start? Where do I begin? When you asked, in what I presume was some moment of lucidity and possibly sobriety, if we could go back to the way things were, even though I said no at the time, I tried anyway. And evidently I failed at making that clear to you or assuring you that was what I wanted when I invited you to come see me in Wisconsin in that narrow little window between life with Dirk and life with Leaf. I definitely will at some point. Oh, Benjamin, I have to tell that 19-year-old girl who still lives inside my heart all the time that there's no way she could have or should have held her breath for you to come back from Texas, from addiction, but she spent more hours than she would admit to anyone but me checking her email and asking her Mima if anyone had called. No one knew where you were all that summer, not Walter or your family, according to Walter. Maybe not even you. (laughs) We spent all that summer not knowing where the hell you were or what the hell you were doing or if you were dead. Last we heard, you were touring around the country with some promoter some dude that gave Walter a bad vibe and who I'm pretty sure was some enabler or supplier of yours, but I have no way of knowing that beyond my own intuition. You may like to pretend that I gave up waiting to hear if you were still here among us, among the living, and still coherent, and you were so angry with me for that, but that's not how my life looked. I was completely shattered and desperate for anyone to tell me I was special or that everything was going to be okay, which was something Leaf was able to offer. And well, you never were. You were so affronted that I would move on when I was left to wonder how you could give up something that seemed pretty great to me for a life that revolved completely around sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It seems trite, but that's where my head went. I definitely will at some point. Was Wisconsin supposed to be the last stop on that tour? I'll never know. You told Walter you were completely fucked up over me, but you never even told me that you loved me. Was that the plan then? To wind up on some grassy hill in Wisconsin overlooking the cows and the big red barn next to some little white chapel where the wind would sweep my bleach blonde hair off my teenage face and you'd finally say, I love you? Was that the plan? I told Walter that he had it all wrong. I lived and died by that truth only to be villainized for it by you and all of you down in Texas. Walter eventually forgave me, which is how we're still friends, but I never took that as some benevolent act of his, more like a necessary act to preserve what was left of our friendship, a friendship that wouldn't even exist without you. 
I've learned a lot of lessons I've had to extrapolate from that time in my life. And the big one I got from you was to tell people I love that I love them. You could always throw that back at me too. I never said that I love you either. Not to your face at least. And in some ways I couldn't forgive myself for that either. I always wonder, what if I had? Especially the last time I saw you, I was sobbing. Right before I snuck out of your dorm in Austin when you stirred awake to see me go and we locked eyes for a long, sad moment and you turned and went back to sleep. The consequences for keeping love to oneself are devastating and long-lasting, life-altering, heartbreaking, and I assume by now you know that, maybe because of me or maybe because of Letitia. But if you haven't figured that out by now, I hope you do before your kids are grown, for their sake and for the sake of whomever you might be with now. My little 18, 19-year-old self would still love to hear it, that you at least loved me then, so that I today can know for sure that I'm not completely crazy, and perhaps then I can close this one emotional chapter for good, and then maybe close the book. The year after we met was my senior year of high school, as you'll recall. My father got fired for something awful he did at his job he'd had for all my life. And I never knew completely what, but my mother was both rigidly angry and adamant that it meant they had to leave Madison and move in with my sister in Chicago immediately. That meant putting the house on the market early that spring in the middle of my senior year and leaving me there all alone to fend for myself. I had a job on weekends, but I took on a second one for weekday afternoons while trying to keep my grades up and getting into state and national competition again that year, which I was somehow, by some miracle, able to do. I spent that entire spring and summer working, drinking, and getting high. I slept with way too many guys and a couple girls, and did everything in my power to avoid sitting still or sleeping. Even driving to work. The pain would find its way into my head and the relative quiet on my short little commute. I got fired from my second job for always being late, but my boss and I both knew it was because I was always hungover and useless. Work was just another fix for me anyway, in locating all the things that could distract me from the pain of watching my young little life fall apart so I could feel anything but the culmination of years of neglect and carelessness and disregard from a pair of parents that trusted our TV to raise me and put a key around my neck to guide me home from school starting in kindergarten. I felt so lost and alone. The house I grew up in felt so stale, and I hated every minute of being there, a place that buzzed with the sound of me and my own siblings once, who step by step left me behind, followed by our very own parents, leaving me nothing but premature adulthood and the deafening sound of no adult in my life giving an actual shit about me. So when my mom started leaving her car in the garage and her keys on the counter after they'd stopped by to check on the house each weekend before going back to Chicago on Sundays... I decided I needed to go somewhere, anywhere. 
Garrett and I said for years when I graduated from high school that we would spend some time backpacking across Europe. And I even took four years of French in preparation, but of course, he took Winnie instead. I tried to be understanding about that, but it was pretty difficult. Ultimately, however, I didn't even have a passport and wouldn't until I was 30 years old when Ronan took me to Europe for our engagement trip. He really hated that I spent all that time learning French, even continuing to minor in it in college, only to not ever go. Instead of the European trip I was promised at that time, Conrad and I started cooking up some big ideas for some big road trip we wanted to take before I disappeared to Texas for good. And we were having a look at quite a few different national parks where we could go camping and smoke all the weed we could get our hands on. Right about that time, I got one of your letters. I wasted little time in calling you as soon as I got it, as was the tradition, to the ire of my parents who complained about the long distance charges and made me pay them back. By then, I really didn't care. I told myself I was going to have a nice, long conversation with you, even if it lasted well into the night, which it did, as you convinced me to grab Conrad and drive all the way to Marfa, Texas, and from there we would go to Big Bend National Park. The plan was set. Conrad was in. He barely met you over Thanksgiving and thought you seemed pretty cool but a free place to stay was a no-brainer. So we got up at 5 a.m. on a Tuesday and stole my mom's car and drove 21 hours straight, taking turns as a team to get to your parents' house in the Chihuahuan Desert in West Texas. We got there midday on a Wednesday and drove up the long drive to your family's split-level ranch house in the middle of nowhere to find you standing in the driveway with the biggest smile I ever saw across your handsome, young face. Your mama fed us and your daddy made conversation with us after we took some very necessary hot showers in well water that smelled faintly of sulfur. And I felt like I'd driven into a real life dream. The red and brown hills seemed flat and lifeless from far away, but up close they came alive with colorful flowers and scurrying varmints and insects. I had seen Dallas by then and was perplexed. It looked nothing like what I imagined Texas would, but Marfa, that was Texas to me. Isn't that something you always said to me anyway? That where you were from was the real Texas and that everything else was just Dallas? Oh, yeah. That was definitely you. That first night there in your old bedroom was the first time we had sex. I had just gotten my first tattoo to look like Starry Night by Vincent Van Gogh. It was still sore. You tried to give me a massage and I took my shirt off to show you why that was a bad idea. It was peeling and it looked awful, but you said it was beautiful. You embraced me from behind and fumbled with my bralette until I helped it off. We undressed and tumbled into your boyhood bed. It was clumsy 
and I was so tired and so afraid of what that might mean for us and how that might make everything between us change and so frightfully in love with you that I felt like any sudden move such as making it sexual could extinguish any chance of it being reciprocated as I had experienced several times before with other guys. But oh, how I hungered for you and welcomed you in. We were quiet because even though we were in the basement far away from where your parents slept, Conrad was on the couch in the rec room just on the other side of the door. The drive to Big Ben the next day was absolutely surreal. The car was filled with music and laughter. I worried about making Conrad feel like a third wheel, but by no means did that ever happen. We were quite the trio. I never laughed so hard in my life, trekking along those rugged mountains and indulging in a much-needed burger at the diner in the Chisos Basin near our camp. Poor Conrad put up with a lot of our hanky-panky in the tent that one night. I felt horrible about it when he brought it up the next day and asked that we please not do it again. He has never let me live that down. My parents weren't as upset as I thought they'd be when I called them to tell them where I'd taken the car. They asked me if I had their credit card and I admitted that I had, but that I'd only used it on gas like it was intended for. And my mom suggested I offer to pay for some groceries to make up for Conrad and me eating your folks out of house and home. Your mom acted like that was a very bizarre thing to suggest because it totally was. She said, that's not hospitality. I'll never forget that. No one had ever shown me hospitality before. It felt really nice. I thought your parents were the best especially when your mom packed us all that food and sent us out with a blank check to get supplies at Walmart for our trip. Your dad let us borrow all his nicer, more suitable equipment too. It was glorious. From there, you insisted we go to Austin and have some real fun at a place called Sixth Street, where we could meet up with your best friend and soon-to-be dormitory neighbor, Walter. A long, maddeningly fun drive awaited us, and Walter greeted us on the sidewalk already a few drinks in, and we scurried into the alley to smoke a big, fat joint. We got into enough bars that night with no ID because nobody bothered to guard us. I remember thinking Austin was the most fun town I'd ever see. I remember vividly wishing Dallas would be just as fun. The next day, we took Walter back to your folks with us and went camping just outside a city called San Angelo, where he was from. He knew of a campsite along a grove of mesquites beside a tributary, which ran to a huge yet pitiful-looking lake. You both were getting into some fairly interesting drug use at that time, and I was happy to play along. We turned that sad little campsite into a wonderland with the help of some pills you and Walter bought in Austin. You and Walter talked about how glad you were to be back in West Texas because Austin hadn't been what you'd hoped. Gio didn't like it in Austin either, and after you parted ways, he stayed in Madison to be with Francesca a while before they both went out to New York to stay. 
It must have been a terrible place, Austin, because from what I heard from Gio and by extension Francesca back then, all you two ever did was drink and get high. Yeah, too bad Austin is becoming just like Dallas. I hope you don't hate it there, you said to me, starry-eyed at the thought of being closer to you at least. From what I'd seen of Texas, I thought if Austin is anything like Dallas, I would love being in Dallas. With Conrad and Walter around and after what we did in the tent at Big Bend, I wished we could be all over each other with affection. I had to wait until nightfall when we would bundle up in our sleeping bags and grin at each other face to face until we fell asleep. The remaining days and nights on that trip were spent at your family home. I was supposed to be sleeping in your brother's bed, but instead you sneaked me into your room those last few nights and we'd make love, really make love, like in the movies. And you'd hold me and you'd hold eye contact with me. And we'd fall asleep with our faces pressed together, our knees stacked, our legs all tangled up. In the wee hours of the morning, I'd sneak back into your brother's room, go back to sleep coyly in his much larger bed, and you'd eventually wake up and crawl into bed with me there. You'd curl up next to me under the covers and we'd talk and we'd giggle. The last day we were there, your friend from high school, Vanna, rolled up into your drive, bored and looking for someone to hang out with or something to do. I really liked her and thought she was fun and made funny jokes. And she brought weed, too, which was great because we had all just run out. All five of us smoked a joint right there on the trampoline. And then some of us took turns jumping on it, trying to vault the others who were sitting tightly in tiny balls in the fetal position, trying not to let go with all their might until a giant and apocalyptic-looking storm rolled in, forcing us inside, where we watched it mouths agape from the sliding glass door of your parents' basement, high as kites. The last night I was there in your bedroom, we promised. We swore on our 18- and 19-year-old souls We'd meet back up right there in your old room at Christmas and plan out the rest of our lives together. We both knew what that meant, and it was big, and it was scary, but it thrilled us to our core. We also talked about the reality of a long-distance relationship and how it had always been fairly casual between us, but now that we had something real, something substantial, we maybe had to make some rules. We agreed that since we had always seen other people, we would continue to do so. I told you that wasn't necessary, that there didn't need to be anyone else for me. You insisted that because you didn't want to rob me of my freshman year experience that we continue to see other people. You had been to college and I hadn't. You seemed to know what you were talking about when you said that there would be loads of new and interesting people I would meet and that you didn't want to keep me from that because I hadn't done that to you. And that was true. The thought never crossed my mind to prevent you from dating anyone you wanted. And I suppose I deserved similar courtesy. You kept talking that whole week about how your dad would make us the most amazing steaks of our lives which he made for us that night, and you weren't lying. They were delicious. 
We sat out on the veranda under a clear, blazing sunset, under the largest sky I'd ever seen in my life at the time, and ate that home-cooked meal while your parents gently asked me questions about my upbringing and invited me to church the next day before we took off back home, for which I brought an outfit just in case. We held hands in the pew, just as we did when you'd come to visit my home church back in Madison. Your parents spoke of Texas proudly, and even seemed proud of me for deciding to move there. Your dad said, well, you maybe weren't born in Texas, but you got here as soon as you could, and slapped me affectionately on my back. The drive to Wisconsin to take Conrad home was monstrous and long, and it seemed like it would never end. Conrad and I both fell asleep at the wheel multiple times. About six hours into the trip, Conrad veered off the road and into a ditch. We scampered out the doors like a stoplight fire drill, screaming to discover the car was pretty scuffed up, but it was all in one piece. Based on the sound it made alone, I had feared worse and was pleasantly surprised. Conrad bawled. I assured him it was fine, that we had insurance, and that I would tell my parents it was me who did it. When we got back in the car, I reminded him of the time I told him he could turn left because the guy heading towards us, toward our left, was signaling right, and he ended up T-boning Conrad's dad's car. So we're even, I declared. All the same, I drove the remaining 12 hours north, and I was delirious the whole way. In solidarity, Conrad stayed awake to keep me awake. We stopped at truck stops and bought all kinds of concoctions we found on the counter, claiming they would keep us awake. The moment they would wear off, we would pull off and buy more. We kept the windows open and the stereo blaring, and somehow we barely made it to Conrad's house. My parents had sold the house I grew up in, and I was supposed to meet them in Chicago with my mom's car and where I could pick up my own little VW bug at my sister's. I dropped Conrad off in Madison, stayed the night at his folks, and early the next morning drove to my old house, which stood vacant and dark. I sat out front of the only home I'd ever known in my mom's trashed-out, smelly car, stinking from the best road trip of my life and the body odor of the three boys I loved most in the world, and I just cried my poor little eyes out. When I arrived in Chicago, everyone was mad at me about the condition of my mom's car. I didn't care. That week was like a year to me. Elongated time with you and our very best friends together. I fell madly in love with Texas on that trip, and I was heartbroken to leave, only to be returning a few weeks later, not realizing that the next two years of my life would be miserably spent on the I-35 corridor in a part of Dallas and at a particular time in Dallas, where a lovely old college campus was embedded in a filthy, rotten, and decrepit urban core. Nothing like the wild, windy foothills of the beautiful Davis Mountains. You had everything to do with my decision to move to Dallas, by the way. I suppose you knew that. And if you did, it really didn't seem to bother you that I was moving across the country to be closer to you, at least at first. In my mind, Dallas and Austin would be like Madison and Milwaukee, just a hop, skip, and jump away. But no, it was a comfortable enough distance I'd find out soon enough where I wouldn't be trampling all over your life and your secrets 
and you would stay out of mine with what seemed like careful precision.